To death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is God's Word. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, Paul had concerns in mind. It's hard for us to completely reconstruct what was going on here in this particular time period, but as we read the letter, the best that we can do with this is to say that Something had crept into the church, and it probably was a mixture of of legalism with a little slant of mysticism. Now, in that sense, it's helpful for us because we see the same things all around us today. Essentially, what these heretics were doing, because there were heretics that were creeping into the church, is they were saying that Jesus is important, but you need something else. Jesus plus something. Jesus plus some rules. Jesus plus a little slant of mysticism. And Paul is warning these Colossian believers that that is incredibly dangerous because Jesus plus something will always, inevitably, without fail, lead you to destruction. So Paul wants these people to see that Jesus is not just essential. He's the only thing. He's our only hope. So Paul is writing to the Colossian believers to help them to remember that Jesus is their only hope and to hold on to Him and to be very aware of anything which would distract them from Him. It does matter how you live, but how you live does not make you acceptable before God. In other words, the reason that you are accepted by God is because He has placed you in Christ. He sees you in Christ. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. If we have grown up in church and we have listened to countless sermons and read our Bibles a good bit, we have grown accustomed to that thought. But Paul wanted these Colossian believers to be grounded in the notion and the sure and unshakable truth that Jesus was their only hope. And so to counter the teaching of these legalistic mystics, Paul presents the idea that Jesus is preeminent. He's the first in rank in everything, both in creation and in redemption. He made all things and all things are held together by Him. And he's the first in rank in the church. But not only is he that, he is for us as well. In chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, Paul presents this notion that Jesus is preeminent in all things. But in chapter 2, he shows us the link as to why this is so important for us. In chapter 2, verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Who is He? He is the preeminent one. But verse 10 shows the link for us. 
And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So if Jesus fills all things, if the fullness of deity dwells in him, and we have been filled in him, what do we lack? We lack nothing. So we don't need Jesus plus rules. We don't need Jesus plus mysticism. We, we have all we need in him. And the thing that should blow our minds, despite the fact that we have some theological perception of it, is that God sees us in him. God was pleased to place all of his fullness in the man Christ Jesus And then he placed us in him, and he sees us in him. The Father does not see us on our own merits. If he did, we would be doomed. Paul reminds the Colossian believers in chapter 2, verse 6, that they received Christ Jesus. How? By faith. And they are to continue to walk in him. By faith. And because God sees us in Christ, we are accepted. This doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how you live, which is why Paul then goes on to chapters 3 and 4 and begins to tease out some implications of what it looks like to be in Christ. And that's why he says in chapter 3, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So, How does God see us? If we have received Jesus by faith, if we are continually trusting Him, resting in Him, then we are secure. We are safe. We don't need anything else. And yet, at the same time, there is great responsibility placed upon us to live for His glory. And I want to say to you that in the coming weeks, as you live together as a church body in my absence, I want you to remember who you are. I want you to remember who you have been called to be. I want to remind you that you are in Christ and you are secure. And that's what Paul is saying to us in our text beginning in verse 12 today. So, in light of the unfathomable grace that God has shown us, we must be, first of all, merciful. But before I talk about what mercy looks like in our lives, I want to go back to this leading portion of our sentence that will guide the rest of our thoughts today. God has shown us unfathomable grace. It doesn't mean that you can't conceive of it in some ways, but what I'm saying is, is it's so deep that you will spend the rest of your life exploring its depths. The grace that God has shown us in Christ is unfathomable. Paul reminds us here in verse 12 that we are the chosen ones of God. We have been set apart by His own sovereign design. It's interesting that sometimes this doctrine can be one that that leads us to to rancor, that leads us to to frustration, and leads us to to the kind of dialogue which often goes towards acrimony and towards tension. But it's interesting that typically, not always, but typically in the Bible, when God's sovereign grace is choosing us before the foundation of the world is described, that it's put in a context of encouragement. Paul certainly understand that this doctrine could be somewhat divisive. You see that in places like Romans chapter 9, for instance. But Paul tended to see this doctrine of God choosing us as one that should bring us hope, not one that should bring division. And therefore, we should not be ashamed of it. We shouldn't hide it like the family secret. We should celebrate it that God has chosen us in Christ. And the reality is, the horrifying reality is, frankly, that if God had not done that, there would be no hope for us. We would not have come to Him. Paul is clear about that in Romans chapter 3 where he says that no one seeks for God. It is not only that we cannot, we do not, we will not, we do not want Him. 
One of the drastic effects of the fall is that we are bent toward self-worship. We become curved in on ourselves. But this doctrine of God's election where He chooses us out of our sin for Himself, for salvation, for being in His family, for being in Christ is a glorious doctrine which should bring you hope. So I encourage you, if this is a doctrine that you struggle with, and many do, and I understand that, and you might even be on somewhat of a different page theologically than what I'm describing today, I say to you that this is not a doctrine which would or should lead you to rancor or acrimony. This is a doctrine which should lead you to thanksgiving. We'll see that more in just a few moments. Not only are we chosen, we are set apart to be holy. Holiness, as we have described in the past, is not just a synonym for sinlessness. Um, We call God holy. The angels swirl around the throne of God and call Him holy, holy, holy. They're not merely saying that He is sinless, sinless, sinless. That's, That's obvious. The idea of holiness is something more than that. The idea of holiness is that we have been set apart from sin to God. So, putting this together with the idea of being chosen, God has chosen us to no longer be children of wrath. God saves us from His own wrath. But it's more than just being negative, it's positive as well. We've been chosen out of wrath. We've been chosen out of living for being bent in on ourselves. We've been chosen to be set apart to God, to live for His glory. And furthermore, Paul says that we are beloved. So so think about those three things that Paul says here at the head of this text. We've been chosen by God. We've been set apart for His glory, whereas formerly we would have tried to live for our own, bent in on ourselves, and we are beloved. If you've been around here long enough, you you know that we emphasize this notion that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. The truth of the gospel, and this has been said by someone far wiser and more experienced than me, is that we are told in the truth of the gospel that we are far worse than we would ever want to admit, but we are more deeply loved than we can ever imagine. And, and we are both of those things at the same time. And yet God has set us apart for Himself anyway. And we are beloved by God. No, this is not a Mother's Day sermon. This fits as somewhat of an exhortation to you. As Josh prayed earlier, we are blessed here to have godly moms. And as I watch you mothers take care of your children, I I watch you pour into them, and I love to see that. And as Josh well said in his prayer, this is a reflection of what it looks like to be one of God's daughters is that you pour your love out on your daughters and your sons. You would do anything, even laying down your physical life for the good of your children, because they are dear and they are precious to you. They are beloved. Jesus understood who we are, both in our strengths and our weaknesses. In the Sermon on the Mount, He says, who of you... If your child asks for an egg, would give him a scorpion, or for a fish, would give him a serpent, or for a piece of bread, would give him a stone. No good parent would do such a thing. And then Jesus says something sort of striking, sort of indicting, bothersome. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more does your father know how to take care of you? And so I say to you, you who love your sons and your daughters today, mothers and fathers alike, God is infinitely more for you than even you can understand in your love for your own kids. He is committed to you, and He will never let you go. 
That's how Paul begins this section. And it's in keeping with what he's already said in the letter so far. He wants these people to remember that they are not accepted by God because of what they have done. They are accepted by God because He has placed them in Christ. So there are certain things that Paul wants these Colossian believers to do. In fact, there is a command here at the beginning of verse 12 to put on. Before he gets into what they are to put on, he reminds them one more time who they are. So what we do always flows out of who we are. We cannot get the cart before the horse. And so I say to you, the grace that God has shown us collectively is unfathomable. But because He has done so, there are certain ways that we should live collectively. We must do these things. So, because unfathomable grace has been shown to us by God, we must first of all be merciful. And it's interesting that this is a reflection of of what we've already talked about today. Has God not been merciful to you? Had God not chosen you out of your course towards sin? Had God not chosen you out of being bent in towards yourself, where would you be? You would be on the path of destruction because that's where self-worship leads. What did God do? He, He mercifully snatched you out of that trajectory and set you on a new one. What has God done for you? He's been merciful to you. Mercy is is not giving us what we deserve. We deserve His wrath. We deserve His punishment. And yet God delights in being merciful. It's interesting in verses 5 through 11 that Paul tells us the things that we're not supposed to do anymore. And it's not just the big ones like we see in verse 5, like sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire. I mean, those seem like the big ones. But he goes on to talk about, in verse 8, slander, obscene talk, anger, things we all struggle with. Because of who we were, God had every right to just let us go. Because we were bent in on ourselves, all God had to do was just take His hand of restraint off of us, and we would have imploded. But what did God do when the first sin occurred? He, he came to Adam, and even He demonstrated mercy to them. He had given them one law, and they broke it anyway. And yet, He does not come and vaporize them. He came and He showed them mercy because that's who He is. He delighted in showing mercy. And it's frankly astounding that He made the world in the first place. God was not caught off guard when the first couple fell into sin. In fact, if we understand the very fabric of the story of human history, we have to say that God made the world so that He could show His mercy. No angel has ever been rescued from sinful turning from God. It is only humans, image bearers, upon whom God has shown His mercy. And He made the world so that He could show this mercy, so that not only He would delight in displaying it, but that we would delight in receiving it and then dispensing it. The difficulty for you and for me is that we often are not very merciful. Because though the curse is being done away with, its effects are still here. God told Adam and Eve that not only was their vertical relationship with Him broken, their horizontal relationships would be affected as well. And don't you know that to be true? With your dad, your mom, your spouse, your kids, your friends, your neighbors. All of us probably have more than one person in our lives to whom it is so difficult to show mercy. But why are we called to be merciful? Because our God has delighted in showing us mercy. And isn't it so interesting and frankly indicting that we crave mercy from God 
and our knowledge of our abundant sin, and we all sin a lot. And yet it's so difficult to show mercy to the people who sin against us. It shows that we still need a lot of saving Because even if we have been justified, even if God sees us in Christ, even if our condemnation has been taken away, even if we realize that God is constantly merciful to us, it's difficult to be merciful. Why does Paul tell the Colossian believers to be merciful? Because he knows they won't be. Because he knows it's hard for him interesting if you think about the heresy that was creeping into the church. You have these, these heretics coming in basically saying, okay, yeah, take your Jesus, but add some stuff to him. Keep some rules, have kind of a mystical slant to it, and then you'll be good to go, and God will accept you, and, and you'll be fully satisfied and complete. Paul has already argued, as we've seen today, that that's bogus, and that's a path that will lead to, to great error and great problem. So Paul says, you're complete in Christ. You have all you need. You are filled in Him. But the reality is we all have a tendency to try to buy God off. You see, it's easy for us to diagnose legalism in other people. It's difficult for us to see it in ourselves. And legalism basically is anything that we trust in to hope that we're accepted by God. And we've all got our stuff. But what happens whenever you trust in your rules? What happens whenever you create a construct whereby you think God will accept you? Well, you become prideful. And when people don't measure up to your expectations, when they don't live by your construct, guess what happens? You look down upon them. You have an infection. I have an infection. We have a collective disease, and that is that even though we believe the gospel, we still have a tendency to create our own rules, our own patterns whereby we think God will be pleased with us. And when other people don't live up to those patterns, we look down upon them. We're frustrated with them. As parents, it's difficult to be merciful to our kids, especially whenever they break our rules again and again and again. As wives, it's easy to be unmerciful toward your husband whenever he doesn't fulfill your desires in the way that you want him to. Husbands, the same toward your wives. Friends, this is true. How many of you have a perfect friend? Everybody craves the perfect friend, right? You don't have to teach your kids this. I was talking to Sam the other day, my seven-year-old, and he brought up some kid from school I had never heard of with one of these cool modern names that all the parents are using. I don't remember what it was, because uh, I'll probably offend you because you've used it. And, and, and he said, he's my best friend. I'm like, I've never even heard of him. What do you mean he's your best friend? But we have this tendency. We have this tendency to, to try to, to set people apart to ourselves as though you know, they're with us and we're with them and we're super chummy and they're dear to us and us to them. Because we want to feel secure, we want to feel safe. But as we've learned over time in our marriages and with our relationships with our kids and our friends, nobody's perfect. In fact, people are going to disappoint us. And then often in those times whenever disappointment comes, we have a tendency to insulate ourselves from hurt, and therefore we're not merciful. We, we are indicting toward others. We are retributional. We are the opposite of what God is like. Think about this for just a moment. How does God typically treat you when you sin? And and maybe furthermore, how many of you have already sinned today? I dare say most of us have, maybe already multiple times. You're still breathing. You have money to go to a restaurant afterward today and have Mother's Day meal. You have clothing on your backs. You will go to your homes that are heated and cooled. You will have people hug you when you go to bed tonight, most of you. And that's reality. You're you're still here. You're okay. 
And the one who made all things and the one who holds all things together, he, he has let you be here today despite the fact that you've already broken his laws today. And you will again today, probably most of you. And yet, what is Jesus like all the time? He's full of mercy. And you, you've grown to expect that. Wives, when you disrespect your husbands, Jesus doesn't vaporize you. Husbands, when you are harsh with your children, fathers, when you're harsh with your children, Jesus doesn't come down and strike you dead like you deserve. We've grown so accustomed to His mercy that we take it for granted. But I say to you, it does us well to conceive of His mercy, to think of His mercy, to meditate upon His mercy, and to realize now that we are to be like mirrors that reflect that same mercy. Now, is that hard? It's incredibly hard, but it's so strikingly indicting upon the spirits of us who still are sometimes bent in on ourselves that we have higher standards for the people around us than Jesus has for us. So I say to you in the coming months, while I'm not here, I want you to be merciful toward one another. I want you to reflect the mercy that you've come to expect from Jesus to each other. And I'm telling you right now, you cannot do that on your own. But because you are in Jesus, He will help you. So you beg Him, and He will. Not only that, we're to be kind. Our Savior is not only merciful toward us, He's incredibly kind. And you've become accustomed to that as well. He is for you. You know a few people like this in life. Most of us are not like this. Most of us are not inherently kind. If I were to say to you right now to think of the first person that comes to mind um, who is kind, who, who comes to mind for you? It might be your mom. Let's go with that since it's Mother's Day. It might be your mom. Moms are often marked by this. Not every mom, but, but a lot. Dads tend to be kind of the more, you know, achievers and breadwinners and all that kind of stuff. And I know there's all kinds of exceptions to that rule, so don't be upset with me for that. But, you know, dads are kind of driven and visionary and all that kind of stuff. And moms tend to be the ones who are more merciful and kind when kid scratches his knee when he falls off his bike or whatever, whatever. I don't know. But, but there's somebody in your life probably that's marked by this. But, but frankly, if you think about it, most people are not. That's why the kind people stick out. We are to be the kind of people that are marked by this, though. all of us. This, this means that because most of us are not naturally like this, because we are naturally bent in on ourselves so often, that kindness is something that has to develop. And it's interesting here in verse 12 when Paul says to put on, this is not just a suggestion. This is not just for those people who are, who are sort of naturally nice. Some of you are naturally nice. Some of you aren't. I'm not. I'm growing in this. I'm nicer, kinder than I used to be, but I love myself a lot. And I have high expectations. And it's difficult to be kind whenever people don't meet those expectations. And the reality is you have high expectations for me, and we do for each other. And when we don't meet those expectations, it's so easy to not be kind. But merciful people are kind. So I want you to ask yourself, are you? Are you the kind of person that when people come into your presence that, that they think, boy, this is a kind person. They're for me. They're, they're gentle toward me. And maybe if you don't know, you should ask. Like right now, like write a note to your spouse or to your friend sitting next to you and, and ask, am I kind? Or maybe after, you know, we get together today in your home, ask somebody, am I marked by this? Because the reality is you don't, like, this isn't like a buffet. This isn't like a, a smorgasbord of putting on where the things you're basically good at that come naturally to you that you'll, you'll focus on those and ignore the rest. Paul says that we should be putting all these things on. 
And if you don't know yourself, well, ask. And if you get an answer in return, perhaps, that you don't want to hear, then maybe that's something that you've got to put a lot of work into. Very practically speaking, one of the best things that you can do to demonstrate kindness is to learn how to smile. Let me give you a really interesting social experiment. Go to the mall today, okay, after you go to lunch or whatever, and walk up and down the, the corridors at Polaris and just smile at people. Now, you'll feel a little bit weird, right? And people will think you're probably a lunatic. But, but it's so interesting that whenever you do that to people, they cannot help but smile back at you. And there's always going to be this, like, weird person out there that is, like, you know, on the edge of lunacy, and they don't smile back at you. But like 85% of the people that you're going to run across whenever you smile at them, they can't but smile back at you because people don't do that. We're so bent in on ourselves that we, we don't think about the demeanor that we have and how that affects other people. Learn to smile. Uh, it's important, I think, to learn to do this as parents. One of the things that that my wife says to my oldest son a lot because my, my oldest son is driven toward performance. That's who he is. He, he gets it from me. But she, she wrote him a note the other day and, and he's kept it. And she said to him, you will always have my smile. And that's really important for my boy because I know how he's bent. And I love the fact that she was sensitive enough to say that to him and to write that down for him. I want you to know you have mine. As one of the shepherds here, you have my smile. I'd like to have yours. We have to be that way toward each other. Because guess what? We have the smile of the Father. We've already seen in verse 12, we're beloved. If you are beloved, you have the smile of the Father. That's what it looks like to be kind. Thirdly, we are to be humble. Our love for one another is to be marked by humility. Let me ask you another question. This is rhetorical. Are you humble? And all of you rhetorically should answer in unison, no, we're not. Now, are we growing in humility? Are we pursuing humility? Yes. But does it characterize us consistently? The answer, of course, is no. You have another disease called pride. We have like a cocktail of disease, brothers and sisters, and one of these things is pride. And guess how long it's going to take for your pride to be eradicated? Until you draw your final breath. That's how long it'll take. But you have to know your tendencies. Why would these people have, have been enticed by legalism? Why? Because we're all legalists, and we want people to think that, that we've got it all together. And when we come up with our code of rules, the ones that we're basically good at based upon our personality or our part experience or upon our heritage, we learn how to kind of follow those rules and want people to think well of us, and it, it puffs us up. But brothers and sisters, this disease that we have, this, this pride that is within us, it has to be recognized, and you've got to go to war against it. And I encourage you very practically to employ other people in this war. You need help with this. So just like I've encouraged you to ask your spouse or your friend today, and I think maybe some of you should do this. I'm not just kind of joking about this. Am I kind? Maybe it's important for you to employ somebody else in, in the fight against pride, to ask the one you love the most or one who knows you well, do you see me growing in humility? Now, don't ask, am I humble? Because the answer will always be no. I mean, that, you, you don't, you're not ever going to be like this category of humble, I don't think. I mean, it's, it's a growth process. But ask your spouse, ask your friend, do you see me growing in humility? What does it take to ask that question? Exactly. But this is a collective thing. We should be marked by this. And remember, this is because of who we already are in Christ. We've been set apart by Him, and we are beloved by Him, and therefore this should lead us to humility. 
If we are accepted by God in Christ, not because of our actions, but because of His, should we not be the most humble people around? So we must be humble. This summer, pursue humility. Fourthly, we are to be gentle. I think this kind of goes along with being merciful and kind. Merciful people, kind people, they are gentle. I have to say to you that the longer I shepherd, the the longer I pastor, the more I realize how fragile people are. Even you tough ones out there, you people who have a veneer of toughness, who can kind of make life work, you know, inside most of you are pretty fragile. And interestingly, sometimes the people who are the harshest, people who are the most blunt, the people who are the most direct, they're often the most fragile inside. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's just true. Most of us are pretty fragile. And most of us, as we realize, uh, have a long way to go. And we want people to be gentle with us while we change. Some people in our church, in fact, more than you think, in fact, way more than you think, have had such difficult lives, difficult stories from their parents, other people around them who should have protected them that didn't, that they're far more fragile than you can even imagine. And a word or an action or even just a perceived slight can hurt them and wound them deeply. It will never do you wrong to default toward gentleness. It just won't. Husbands, it will never do you wrong to default toward gentleness with your wife. Moms and dads, it will never steer you wrong to be gentle towards your children, even whenever you know and they know that they've done wrong. You ladies out there who are probably made up more emotionally than us guys, be gentle with your sisters. And even you guys who, who think that, hey, I've got a brother out there and I can be direct and blunt, be gentle with your brothers. Wasn't Jesus like that? That's why Jesus celebrated the children. Jesus was so gentle to the weakest Jesus had harsh words for the legalists, but Jesus was gentle with those who were trapped in darkness and had no ability in and of themselves to fix it. Jesus was gentle with with the weakest. Default toward gentleness. Wouldn't it be nice at the end of all things, whenever it's time to to answer to God, to have it said of you that, that basically, not perfectly, but basically you were marked by gentleness. Don't you want it said that when you're an old grandpa someday or an old grandma and you're rocking on your proverbial porch and your daughters or your sons come along and they come to see you on Mother's Day and your grandchildren come along, that one of the things that they, they do is they look at you and they say, thank you so much for being gentle with me. And wouldn't it be amazing that if if we had a heritage, if we, if we raised family trees here which were permeated by gentleness, I say to you this summer, grow in gentleness. The same gentleness that Jesus shows you, you are to demonstrate to other people. Before we move on to the next thing, I want to say to you, especially those of you who are raising sons, teach your boys to be gentle. If we can raise boys who will grow into men who can treat their wives and their children with gentleness, we will have done something very, very important. So be very, very careful about that. Don't be harsh with your boys whenever you don't see gentleness in them, but you have to correct them. But gentleness is just as much caught as it is taught. In other words, you can't just tell your boys, be gentle, and then not be in practice. You've got to show them. So men, husbands, friends, whatever category you fall into, you learn to be gentle and you model that here. I want us to be that way. I see that. I see that in so many of you. But it needs to grow. 
among all of us. The fifth thing is that we are to be patient. This goes along with being merciful. Merciful people are patient. Even though you might try to hide it from others or yourselves, you know you've got a lot of problems. But aren't you glad that your Savior is very patient with you? Why is He patient with you? Because He chose you. This wasn't some sort of like celestial e-harmony thing. Like God didn't say, well, there's going to be person X and person Y and person Z. I'm going to choose a couple of them, and I just hope it works out. I I hope that when I love them, they'll love me back, and it'll all be kind of golden. God, God knew everything that you would do. God is not surprised when you're prideful. God is not surprised when you're lustful. God is not surprised when you're idolatrous. He foresaw all of this. And He chose you anyway. But He's patient with you while you change. Brothers and sisters, we must learn to be patient with one another. I need you to be patient with me. I am not a perfect pastor. I'm not a perfect dad. I'm not a perfect husband. I'm not a perfect friend. I have loved shepherding here, and you've been patient with me as I've grown, and I have a long way to go still. And I want to be patient with you. And collectively, this should mark us, that we should be patient toward one another. This doesn't mean that we don't address wrong. Whenever there is sin, we must address it, but we are patient with one another while change happens. Paul goes on to say that we are to be long-suffering. In verse 13, the head of the verse, he says that we are to bear with one another. Boy, that's hard, isn't it? It's hard to have long-term relationships because ultimately, whenever you put two sinners together, what's going to happen? You're going to have conflict. This is why the divorce rate's so high. That's why so many people have problems with their parents and with their kids, with their siblings. It's almost shocking anymore to hear somebody who really likes their dad or who really likes their mom or who talks to their siblings on a regular basis or who has friends that last more than a few years. But our Savior bears with us despite our faults. And again, as I already said to you, why do we have a higher standard than He does? He bears with us. He doesn't cast us off. He doesn't say, well, that didn't work out. This person's not very faithful to me. He bears with us. And therefore, as we reflect that as His image bears, we are to be that way as well. This is one of the hardest ones here in this text. Because the reality is people hurt us, and they disappoint us. We have legitimate needs, and we have expectations. And the sad reality is that most people will just not live up to those. But you don't live up to your Savior's expectations very often as well. And yet, He loves you. He bears with you while you change. You are not who you used to be because He has given you time And your brother or your sister around you needs time, so bear with them while they change. And then he goes on to say that we are to be faithful toward one another. We're to be the kind of people who don't give up on one another. He goes on to say after that that we are to be postured toward forgiveness. This means in in sort of a strange, unfathomable way that we are almost to delight in forgiveness. We have this rule, if you will, in our house that whenever wrong is done, whenever sin is committed against another, that we don't just look at each other and say, I'm sorry. What's that mean? I'm sorry that I did it. I'm sorry that I got caught. I'm sorry you feel bad. I'm sorry that I'm in trouble. I mean, that's very vague. I'm sorry. So, we have an expectation in our home that 
whenever wrong is committed, that we use this kind of language. I was wrong. Please forgive me. That acknowledges the error, and it acknowledges the sin that was committed against the other person. And then the response typically is, I will always forgive you. We're trying to teach our boys something very important, that one day they're going to grow up and they're going to have wives. And what do I want their wives to know? Someday I'm going to have daughters-in-law. What do I want them to know? I want them to know what God is like because they see in their husbands. And then they're going to raise kids. What do I want my grandchildren to know someday? I want my grandchildren to know someday what God is like, that He always forgives. So I've got to teach my boys that now. What do I want my wife to know whenever she sins against me? What do I need to know whenever I sin against her? That I will always be forgiven because God always forgives me. I will fail you probably soon. What do I need to know? That you'll forgive me as your brother. You will fail me soon. What do you need to know? That I'm postured toward forgiveness. I'm ready to forgive. I want to forgive. In fact, in a strange way that the world cannot understand, I I want to delight in forgiving. It's going to cost me something. It's going to cost you something. You're giving up your rights every time you forgive somebody, just like God gives up His rights every time He forgives you. He has the right to punish you He has the right to condemn you. But how did God show His forgiveness for us? He punished His Son. This is the heart of the Christian gospel, that there was punishment, but the image bearers can be released from that punishment. Because the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, already took the punishment. And if God loved you enough to punish His Son so that you could be forgiven, don't have a higher standard for people around you. And again, just to be clear, this doesn't mean that that sin should not be dealt with. It doesn't mean that hurt, it doesn't mean that wrongs should not be righted. Of course they should. But I'm just saying to you that whenever a person is ready to ask for forgiveness, be ready to extend it. Be eager to extend it. Brothers and sisters, if we live long enough together, we are going to hurt each other, probably repetitively, probably deeply. But it should be that every time forgiveness is asked for, that it is offered, and every time it's asked for and offered It should make the relationships stronger, not more fragile, not more brittle. Think about that. Every time God forgives you, which is multiple times a day for most of us, your relationship does not become weaker, more fragile. You don't become more and more skittish around God the older you get, right? And how many times have you sinned against Him? I mean, countless, right? Isn't it amazing that every time He forgives you, your notion of His love grows deeper? You're learning that in your marriages. You're learning that with your kids. Friendship's a little harder, frankly. But be quick to ask for forgiveness whenever you've done wrong. Be quick to offer it when you have been wronged. And trust the Spirit to help you grow and your understanding and your appreciation for deeper relationships as forgiveness is necessary. A few more. Paul says that we are to be eager to love. Notice what he says here in verse 14. Above all, put on love. Love, love holds these things together in harmony, he says in verse 14. So we are to be eager to love. Why did God make the world? Because God is love. Why did God make you? 
Because God is love. Why did God send His Son to rescue you? Because God is love. Why do you have relationships? Because you were made to love. Because you are made in the image of God, who is love. So, love holds these things together. Love holds together compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forbearance and faithfulness and forgiveness. Love, love holds all that together like glue. And don't you desperately want to be loved by God? Well, if so, then you are to reflect that love outward. You receive it, and then you are to reflect it. You do not have to be taught to love yourself. You do already. You do have to learn to love other people. Love will bind all these things together. And the reality is it's difficult, and it will be difficult as part of the cocktail of your disease of sin for the rest of your life to love. But brothers and sisters, this is one more area that you must beg God to help you. God, help me love Help me be marked by what you are marked by. We are to be committed to harmony. Verse 15, Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. We have been brought together into one collective whole under the peace of Christ. What's that mean? It means that we've been reconciled to God. We're no longer under condemnation, that we are one with Him. He accepts us. God sees us in Christ. He has set aside His wrath, and now He treats us with love. He treats you as a son and daughter and not an enemy. And therefore, the people around you, they should experience that same kind of harmony. You have been reconciled to God in Christ, and now your relationships, by and large, should be marked by, by increasing reconciliation. By it's why it's not okay to have broken relationships that you don't at least try to fix. Now, all of us have them in one way or another, and we will, and that's sad. But as much as lies within us, we should pursue peace with one another. We are to be committed to harmony. And this has to be active. Notice again in verse 12 that Paul says to put on these things. They're not optional. And the reason he brings them up is because it'll be hard for the Colossian believers, just like it's hard for us. This word is for us today. Harmony will not happen. It will not characterize us unless we pursue it. And the only way that it will be true of us is that if we're all after it. Aren't you glad that you are no longer under the condemnation of the Creator? Well, if you are, and you understand the depths of God's love for you, the unfathomable love that He has shown you in Christ to reconcile you to Himself, that it took the death of His own Son to become your substitute then you have no right to not be committed to purposeful, deliberate, faithful, costly harmony. What did it take to bring you back into a harmonious relationship with your Creator? It cost the death of the second person of the Trinity. What's it going to cost you to have relationships that are marked by harmony? It'll cost you everything. But that's the message of the gospel. It's a beautiful life. It's a costly life. But it's the best life. And you've got to be committed to it. And lastly, you are to be marked by thankfulness. Most of us, in one way or another, are grumblers. It is easy for us to notice the things that we don't like about our church about our marriages, about other relationships. If you think hard enough, 
maybe even right this second, you can think about five things you don't like about me. Five things you don't like about this church. Five things you don't like about your marriage. Five things you don't like about your job. And on and on you go. And guess what? You'll find them. And probably a lot of them are legitimate. If you are enough of an analyst, you can find the wrong in anybody or anything. Just reality. Why does Paul end this little section by talking about thankfulness? He tells you to put it on. That sounds weird, right? Like, we think thankfulness should just be spontaneous, that anything is worthy of thankfulness will just be natural to us. Wrong. He tells the Colossian believers to put it on because it has to be active. If you are prone towards seeing the bad, if you're a natural cynic, if you're always waiting for the next shoe to drop because you think people are going to mess you over, brother or sister, you better learn to practice thankfulness. Maybe you should journal it. Maybe you should write it down somewhere. Maybe you should text it. Maybe you should pin it in a letter. Maybe you should be thankful about the people or for the people who annoy you the most. Maybe you should do it this week. There's somebody you're irritated with here in your church family. Write them a note this week. That'd be kind of funny, right? Because if you receive that note, you'll be like, wait a minute, (laughs) what's going on? (laughs) But maybe you should anyway. It's hard to practice thankfulness. It's easy to be a cynic. It's hard to be grateful. It's easy to be ungrateful. But you are to put it on. It's to mark you. The Scriptures teach us that there is nothing that we have that we did not receive. Everything you have came from God. You have so much. It's easy to be discontent with your friends. It's easy to be discontented with your spouse, with your church, with your job, with your house, with all kinds of things. But do you realize how much we have? I kind of mean materially because we have a lot materially, but I mean so much more than that. We have so much, yet we forget those things all the time and we focus on what is so negative and what is lacking. But historically and globally, we do have so much. But even if all those things were taken away, house, Cars, jobs, the bank accounts, the hobbies, even the relationships. If you have Jesus, you have everything and way more than you'll ever need, and you are to be grateful at least for that, which is the most important thing of all. So because part of the cocktail of our sins is that we are marked by lack of gratitude, I tell you to put it on, as Paul does here. So, brothers and sisters, we have been granted unfathomable grace. We have been chosen by God, set apart for His glory. We are in the beloved. And these things, which are not easy for us, they are to mark us. So, I call you to consider where you are lacking. I call you to confess where you have and continue to sin. And I call you to repent and to trust the one who will help you that these things may grow in you in the days to come. I will not be with you physically this summer. I'll be back late summer, early fall to be with you again. But I want it to be said of our church family that though these things are not perfect, that they are growing, that they mark you. So I will be going away for a little while. The elders will very capably be leading you along the way. But let these things mark you while I'm gone. I want these things to be true of us. And to encourage you in closing, I see so much of this. This does mark you. These things, they're true of you in in spades. But are they perfect? 
No, we have a long way to go. And in 10 years, I'll preach this text again, God willing, and we'll have a long way to go then, still. But until then, may God be faithful to expose our sin, to remind us of the great privileges we have of being His children, and to help us to grow. Practical exhortation here at the end. I'm going to put a couple of slides in front of you where you can go read some further thoughts on this. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 21, Paul says, here's who you are, here's what you should be like. He does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4. Here's who you are, here's what you should be like. That's our life. Here are the privileges we have, and here are the responsibilities that lie upon us. This is not just for the person sitting in your row, it's for you. So meditate, pray, confess, repent, put on these qualities by the grace of the Spirit, for the glory of God, and for our collective mutual joy. Let's pray.